calling all consumer goods, business owners, and marketing professionals. Does planning content ahead of time stress you out? Do you want to run Instagram and Facebook ads, but just aren't sure where to start? If your answer is yes and yes, then our mini course was made for you. It's 100% free and packed with essential tactics that you can implement as soon as today. To join in, visit our website at umaimarketing.com slash mini course. All right, let's get on with the pod. Welcome to the Umai Social Circle, where we talk consumer goods marketing tips to help business owners and marketers grow. We're Karen and Allison, co-founders of Umai, and we're being joined by Mark Nathan, VP of Client Strategy at Egan Nelson, helping to connect CPG startups with funding and legal support, and founder of T-Squared Agency, a specialized strategic consulting firm, and the creator of Texas Boxed, a monthly digest email for CPG brands in Texas. Thank you so much for joining us, Mark. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Awesome. Well, that is a lengthy resume. So (laughs) we'd love to start with your background. So you have a degree in radio, television, film. Is that correct? Yes, from UT. That's right. And then straight into venture capital. Can you help us fill in the blanks there? Yeah, it wasn't so much a blank. It was more of a dash. Here's how it worked. Very simply, really wanted to go into TV when I was younger. I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. Everything was great about TV. Films were a little bit more um, big, whereas I think TV was a lot more interesting and present. And went through three years of UT, uh, RTF, which I really enjoyed. And in the summer of my junior year, going to my senior year, I was visiting my dad back in Houston. My dad was a lawyer back in Houston. And there was a guy in his office and the guy looked like, you know, a perfect casting for a CEO, three-piece suit, the vest, the tie tack, the, you know, the monogram uh, shirt, everything. And he kind of looked at me like I had three heads because I walked in in shorts and sandals like a college kid. And we got to talking and he told me what he was working on. I was in the telecommunications space. He was making set top boxes and fiber optic, all this really cool tech stuff. And I was very much a nerd. So I was really into it. He went to my dad's office, came out an hour later, shook my hand, nice to meet your son, and walked out. And as I walked into my dad's office, he looked at me and said, what the hell did you say to that guy? And I said, I don't know. I just, I just was just talking to him. And he said, well, he thought you were, you were pretty sharp and he wants to hire you. And I said, great. I need an internship. I'm happy to do it. Yes, I'm in. And he laughed. He said, you know, Mark, if you're so damn smart, you're going to work for me. And so, and that's true. And uh, I ended up interning for my dad as as he was an attorney, as I mentioned, and he basically put me on helping this client who was actually raising money for his telecommunications business back in Houston. And at 21 years old, 20, 21 years old, I was in the thick of building presentations and meeting investors and figuring out all the processes that you needed to do to raise money. And I said, I kind of like this. And so by spring break of that year, which is only a couple, three months later, after the fall semester started, I ended up forming a company called Bulldog Financial with my dad. He was the lawyer, obviously. I was doing essentially marketing, but specifically and very, very niche marketing for early stage technology companies trying to get them money. And I basically did that little job for eight years until my dad retired. And I said, it was time for me to take a break. And I ended up working for a bunch of other tech startup things. And I was very, very active and frankly, still am very active in the startup community in Houston, even though I live here in Austin. And I just loved it. It just was one of those things that I kind of fell backwards into and never looked back. Never worked a day of TV in my life. Unbelievable. That is a dash. Yes, that is a dash. A dash. Yeah, I that was, that was. You did say uh, that he was the perfect casting for a CEO. So you still have the lingo. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, he, yeah, that's true. You're right, I do. That's right. Well, I came to realize, and this was something that took me a while to figure out, that running a startup and doing a film or a television project are basically the same thing. Business plan is a script. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got your CEO is the director. You've got, and the producers are the money people. Like, there's a lot of very similar things. And they actually run very similarly. In that a startup, I don't care if you're CPG or technology or even biotech, they all have a problem they're trying to solve. In the case of a film, you're trying to sell a story or tell a story. Whereas the same is true for, and you're in the marketing business, so you both know this, the same is true for a company. A company is constantly telling their story. That's what they're doing. They first, the founder is always telling their story to a co-founder so they can join them. The people that are then the founders and then selling their story to their employees to entice them to come on board. 
the group then turns around and sells their entire story, really their vision to the market. And they have to keep doing it because they have to keep selling. And so there's actually a lot of parallels to the film and television business and startups that it only took somebody with my very uh, wacky, unique background to kind of figure that out. I like that. I like the connecting of the dots there. That's very interesting. So it was so, a lot of fun. <laughs> so you were focused in on tech. So are you now, are you working both in tech and CPG? Like where- I am. Okay. That's right. So uh, in 2005, which feels like ancient times, we actually had a fairly sizable investment in a chocolate company. And this was a crazy industrial chocolate company out of Vancouver, Canada. They were selling chocolates all across Canada and then North America. Uh, we were the like premier chocolate seller to uh, Walgreens at the time that they were trying to compete with Russell Stover, you know, the big yellow box you always mm -hmm. get for, for Valentine's Day. Well, Walgreens thought that Russell Stover's had too much power over that particular category. So they bought one of the brands that my company was selling and they made it into their house brand. And that was kind of an interesting thing to watch. And we did that for a while. And that meant I get to go to all the things like the fancy food show and expo and all that. So I, if you'll pardon the pun, got a taste of the CPG business and I really enjoyed it. And this has really become true. Most people in the CPG business that I've met are fantastic. I really, really like them. They're warm. They're friendly. They're sweet. They really and truly want to put a smile on your face. That's why they got in the business for the most part, except for chocolate people. Chocolate people that I found, and maybe it was just me, I found them to be very, very like closed off and almost like paranoid. And I think it's because a lot of chocolate people come from Eastern Europe, back, Eastern yeah. European backgrounds, and they're they're just very nervous around people that purport to have money and they always think somebody's going to steal something from them. It was uh, really kind of shocking that every single chocolate person I met was a little standoffish, whereas everybody else in CPG has been fantastic. Mm -hmm. That's so funny. That is so wow. interesting. Beware yeah. chocolate people. Yeah. <laughs> well, you just have to treat them with kid gloves. They're like introverts. You got to really coax them out into their, out of their shell. <laughs> So do you see that a lot? I mean, you've been in the industry for a long time where um, a retail store sees that monopoly and then buys or creates their own brand to occasionally that. So yeah. Austin, that's a good question. Uh, yes, I do. I mean, the fact is, is that, and you can even see this extrapolate even to Amazon. If Amazon sees a product that's doing extraordinary well. We've seen a well, lot in Amazon. <laughs> I, and and it's, it's predatory. I mean, yes, if mm -hmm. they see something that's selling really, really well, Amazon or some of these retail stores. I mean, what's a house brand at a grocery store? It's the same thing. Mm -hmm. And they can do it faster, cheaper, better, and without any of the headaches of dealing with vendors. So they do it. And so, and, yes, I think it's a major thing. And, and what kind of, I mean, do you know what happened to Russell Stover? I mean, with their sales or... Should so, CPG brands be scared to get that big or, I mean. No, 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 no. <laughs> Russell Stover is doing just fine. They're right. going to do just fine at Valentine's Day. Matter of fact, it was, we were the ones that created. Our company ended up not doing so well. We had some management issues. And what happened was basically the brand, it was called Truffolinos at the time, went away. We couldn't produce and Walgreens couldn't get our products on the shelf. So they basically said, you know what? We surrender. Now, Russell Stover is what you see when you walk in the door on Valentine's Day and Mother's Day. Mm. Yeah, and that's such a good note. I feel like there is some, a little bit of a fear with some past companies that we've worked with where it's like getting into a retailer is the biggest thing. But if you have a really interesting product and they, the, the store has an opportunity to create their own house brand, it's just like you're dancing on this line of, sharing too much with them and then being able to run with it and create their own. And that's the biggest fear of working with Walmart. And everybody mm -hmm. knows that Walmart mm -hmm. in particular, and has been doing this for years, I mean, decades, is that they will, you know, basically dangle a huge contract in front of these little tiny baby CPG companies. It makes their day. I mean, those CPG companies are popping champagne when they get that purchase order from Walmart. And the very next day, Walmart turns around and says, we need to knock your price down by 25%. And we're going to knock your price down by 25% every single year. Mm -hmm. And if you don't do what we say, you're off the shelf. And then all of a sudden, the CPG brands have ramped up. They've bought new capacity. They've bought new packaging. They've 
you know, pushed all of their focus into this one giant retailer because it really can make or break a brand. But oftentimes that brand cannot handle the volume and overextends themselves and they ended up going belly up because of it. We've seen this many, many times. There was an, an old story and I, I don't remember, I think it was Vlasic Pickles. I want to say it was that brand where Walmart basically says, we need a tub of pickles. We need a gallon sized jar of pickles and you're going to make it for us. And we're going to, this is what it's going to cost. And so basically the whole company geared their entire supply chain to supplying these huge vats of pickles. And all of a sudden they realized they were losing money every single time they sold one of these jars and they took them off the shelf and Walmart said, listen, we want cheap pickles and our players want cheap pickles and that's the way it is. And if you can't supply it, we're just going to cancel you out completely. And they did. And that company ended up going bankrupt because of it. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that's, that's a fairly well-known story. I'm not giving all the details correctly because I wasn't obviously living in that pickle world, but it was definitely a very cautionary tale for dealing with a giant company like Walmart. So is the moral of the story outline something like that in your contract or just don't work with Walmart? <laughs> no, no, you have to work with Walmart. You have to work with the Whole Foods of the world, the Amazon of the world. You have to work with retail. You must. It's just, it's not going to work otherwise. What you do is you gently push back and you have to say no. Don't say yes to everything that the giant company demands because it will turn you inside out. I've seen it many, many times. Mm -hmm. um, there was a, a another company, a local company, Austin, that got into Walmart and it was in the energy bar space. And all of a sudden it was the best day and the worst day of the guy's life because they simply could not profitably supply Walmart with their downward pressure demands. Mm -hmm. And that happens over and over and over again. Walmart's entire ethos is we have the cheapest prices. That's what they do. That's what we're, it's known for. And that's why they're the largest retail on the planet. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing that amazes me about Walmart, I always like to say this, Walmart is the single largest private employer in the United States, second only to the U.S. government. So they can do whatever they want. Yeah. And they do it. And, and when we go there and we buy, you know, cart full of cheap stuff, we do it because that's what we're trained to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, we have the buying power to keep them alive. And exactly. I mean... Um, but I, I mean, I, I don't know the exact percentage, but don't put all your eggs in one basket. I don't know if it's, you know, 50% of your business or more shouldn't be via one retailer or one means of income. Um, but it's like your business. I always say this to a lot of my startup friends. You never want to be somebody's biggest or smallest client. Mm -hmm. If they're your smallest client, they're not going to pay attention. If they're biggest client, then they can basically dictate the terms. So you want to have that baby bear just right fit. And that's true on agency side and that's true on company side. You want to make sure that the company you hire, the agency you hire is the right fit for the stage that you're in. Mm -hmm. And they say that the, the number one single killer of startups is expanding too quickly, is essentially building out infrastructure prematurely. And that could be also said about hiring bigger firms that they could afford to get to where they want to go, but they don't know that they have to be in the same section, the same stage as the agencies are working with. I see it often. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So to mitigate that, I guess, just learn how to say no to things too. It's hard. It's yeah. hard. If somebody's dangling a big contract in front of you, it's really hard to say no mm -hmm. until you start doing the math and making sure you can actually make money on the contract. Mm -hmm. Signing a contract is one thing, actually getting paid on it's another. Very true. <laughs> We've dealt with that. <laughs> sure you have. And that's the, that's, that is the, that's the dirty secret about running any business in the entire world, whether it's an agency, whether it's a retailer, whether it's a manufacturer, your clients, your vendors dictate your terms by how fast they can pay you. Mm -hmm. And cash flow is the lifeblood of any business. So, and, and Walmart, I, and I, I keep, I keep uh, dunking on Walmart, but Walmart's done a lot of great things for this country and I, they're not going away anytime soon, whether I like them or not. But I'm really impressed with the way they've been able to handle supply chain and management and distribution and everything else. But they are notorious for slow paying vendors. Because they can? They can. Yeah. If you could do, most companies do net 30 terms. You mm -hmm. give them something to pay in 30 days. Walmart has net 90. Mm -hmm. You know what they say? Yeah. And you know what they say if you don't like it? Tough. Yeah, non-negotiable. Yeah, hit net the bricks. Net 90? 
Yeah. yeah. Oh my god. And they're, I mean, I'm sure they're asking for huge orders too. It's just how Massive. does that? Yeah. And so in the last few years, a lot of these brands have learned these stories and heard these things. And hopefully by listening to podcasts like this, they can hear them some more. You have to, like you said originally, Allison, you've got to check the contract because net 90 is a killer, especially on super thin margin CPG brands. Mm-hmm. You better have big money bags That's behind right. your <laughs> brand if you even are considering a retailer of that size. It's so- That's exactly right. You you cannot, like Walmart is not your savior. You, you are getting a whole new kettle of fish when you're dealing with a giant company like that. Mm-hmm. And the same can be said of, of Amazon and anybody else. I mean, yeah. anybody that can dictate your terms, they're going to because they can. And that's how the rich people stay rich. They don't give their money away. We want to get CPG owners a piece of that pie. That's right. And they deserve it. Totally agree. So that's Walmart. But I, I, I've been very fortunate. I've got to see a lot of really interesting brands, a lot of things coming up that are more informed and more sophisticated. The one thing that coming from the tech world and now being very much in the CPG world, I only got into CPG about three or four years ago. I mean, officially. And what I found, and like I said earlier, CPG people are generally very sweet and very nice. And they want to put a smile on your face. And this is a blanket statement. It's certainly not true for everybody. But I've also found that CPG people are less sophisticated than tech people, but only because they don't have a playbook. There's thousands of blogs and hundreds of podcasts and all kinds of uh, workshops and books and everything else about running a tech startup, but very, very few about running a CPG startup. And the CPG startup books out there are typically autobiographical. You know, here's how I built this, or here's what I did for this. And it's about their individual story and their journey, but it's not a blueprint of actually how to run a brand. And so CPG people, while I find them a lot nicer in general than tech people, the tech people have a lot more information to go on. And why do you think that is? Why do you think there isn't a blue book or a playbook? (laughs) There there should be. And I'm sure there are out there. I just haven't read it. I'm I'm sure there's something out there. But I think mostly because, and I'm sure you both have dealt with this yourself. When you go and start a tech company, it's typically in the old story. It's the old stereotype. It's two young guys in a hoodie, in two hoodies, in a garage, building some software piece that ultimately gets sold to a Microsoft or a Google or somebody like that, or Facebook. Um, whereas CPG, it's, the, the road's a lot more rocky. It's a lot more obscure. Nobody really knows exactly what the path is. And I think it's because they're so individualistic. Every single brand is different and every single brand has such a different vibe to any other brand, even the one right before them. Whereas tech companies, the pattern is there and it's been mm-hmm. essentially the same pattern for the last 25 years. Whereas CPG, the, the modern world, of C- obviously CPG has been around since the stone ages. I mean, we know what a CPG is. We know what a brand is. We know what food is and beverage and, and sec- accessories, all that. Whereas I don't think that they've had the forethought to really write it down and teach others because frankly, most of the CPG companies out there are one and done. You build a huge brand, you sell it, you may do another one, but most of the people retire because it takes them 20 years to do the overnight success of selling it. Mm-hmm. So when can yeah. we expect that playbook from you? Oh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I have you guys write it. I, excuse <laughs> me, you people write it. I, I want to, I, I don't know, it's, it's a lot. And I don't know nearly enough to even put an outline together, but there are a lot of really smart people that do. I, I mean, I find CPG to be the the most uh so many factors go in so i mean you have to find your individual co-packed packer you can go the retail route you can go the e-commerce route you can go both routes i mean it's just there's so much going on right that i think that's why i mean there is no singular path maybe someone could create the the most profitable path but there are people that are trying. I have seen it. I'm actually pretty impressed with what things are doing. But what I found is that a lot of these newer CPG brands, especially the DTC, the direct consumers, are taking pages out of the tech playbook. Mm-hmm. And we're starting to see a lot more consolidation in the market. And I'm sure you've had clients that asked you questions like, where do I find a co-packer? Or how do I find a packager? I mean, somebody that can actually do the packaging. What about pick and place and shipping and all that? These are questions that are still very much in the stone age. There's no website you can go to. Well, I'm sure there are quite a few websites you go to, but none of them are for your brand or for your location. And the real problem is that it's still very much a trial and error business. 
The same is true for your, the actual taste of whatever you're trying to make. How do you find the right ingredients? How do you find the right uh, mixologist? How do you find the right food scientist to tell you that whatever you've cooked up in your kitchen is gonna be able to be produced in mass with the right ingredients that are healthy and organic and all that, that adds a whole other layer. But the fact is, is that there is such a fragmented business of people who have been doing this for a hundred years that there's no real modern way of really deciding what your brand should be and how your particular food item should taste. And then you have to turn around and go and sell it once again, either e-commerce or to, through retailers. So yeah. the entire CPG market really is very trial and error. And I think a lot of it is word of mouth too, just as many word of mouth recommendations you can get. And I, that brings us to an, another question about community and how important it is to build community to grow your own brand. So what does the Austin CPG community mean to you? Everything. Uh, it's a great question. I love this town for CPG and for other reasons, but the CPG market in Austin, and I can say to you while we're recording this in the end of 2020, which has been a great year for everybody, as everybody will admit, I'm kidding, of course, it's been horrible for everybody, um, except for CPG. The CPG market in Austin is absolutely white hot. It's lava hot. It is lots of people and brands and people moving here and, and sophistication and money. Lots of venture capitalists are coming here with CPG in mind. There is this huge groundswell of activity that's really only happened in the last few years. And I'm very proud to be a part of it. I certainly wasn't the catalyst, but I, I saw the trend and I said, this is something that we need to focus on. And the way I did it about three years ago is as I was talking to a friend of mine, a guy that everybody in the CPG market in Austin should know, a guy named Felipe Vega with mm -hmm. Ironclad, who is just the greatest guy in the world. We met one day through one of the lawyers in my office and shook hands and kind of looked at each other and said, we're going to be friends. And we have been. And so we ended up about, uh, about three or four weeks later, ended up throwing a pretty big happy hour together. And we brought a bunch of brands in and it was a lot of fun. And there were a lot of people there. I thought maybe 20, 25 people would show up. There were 150 people there. It was fantastic. And it was hot in the middle of summer at a brewery and we were sweating, but it didn't matter because we were all having a great time. And it made me realize that there was a, a, a need for regular community meetups. And that's when I started a very, very simple coffee meetup that I called Wake Up Coffee. And we ended up just very simply, I put an invite out to a bunch of people and said, come to this coffee shop. At the time, it was uh, Houndstooth, but we immediately switched it to a place called Cosmic Coffee down in South Austin with a great patio and great coffee and good vibes and good people. And we've been doing a essentially an open coffee every single month for the last three years. And it's just a very casual, very easy way for people to come and say hello before work. I love happy hours. Everybody likes to go do those kinds of things. Obviously not now during COVID, but I figured there was a lot of happy hours out there and they were great. The problem with happy hours is twofold. Number one, you don't get a lot of work done because you're too busy drinking. Fine. That's what they're there for. But number two, and, and really for me, it, they're always too loud. You can probably tell I'm a talker. And when I go to one of those happy hours, I'm usually yelling and I can't hear anything because the music's loud, people are loud. But a coffee is actually a lot easier. And it's before work. You know, I usually do it around 8.30 in the morning. So people can be a little late for work because they are technically working. But it's a lot calmer and a lot more interesting because the people that wake up early are the people that really want to go. Most people who show up to happy hours just want to go to happy hour. doesn't matter who's throwing it. And I've also found, and this is just a personal thing, happy hours are great when you don't have kids. They are. They're a lot of fun. But kids take up a lot of time and they're great and they're wonderful and I'm a very proud father and all that, but they're a time suck. And so it's very easy to go to an open coffee or a morning meeting when kids are either at school or now during COVID times working from home. And it's very easy to actually get that stuff done because older people, people who are a little bit further in their career can actually do them, whereas happy hours are usually off limits. Mm -hmm. That's just a lesson I learned over doing this for many years. Yeah, I, I've been, and it, it kind of makes you very excited and energized to, you know, continue your work and, you know, you're in it together with a bunch of other CPGers. So um, I think it's great. And I think that's very true of Austin. Austin in general, and I found this, I've only been in Austin for six years, and I'm from Houston originally, and, and Houston's great, and I used to come up here all the time, even after I went to school here. 
But Austin has a very, very collaborative vibe. We love helping each other and we love seeing each other succeed. There's never any sharp elbows. There's never any, you know, you do well, so I'm doing poorly. It's always, it's never a zero sum game here in Austin. Uh, I found Austin entrepreneurs, especially CPG entrepreneurs, are really, really open and very, very free with their time. If somebody has a question, they'll always answer it. If there's ever a, a hiccup or a problem, there's always somebody to, you know, shoulder to cry on. But there's a very collaborative vibe here in Austin. I think that's really what makes Austin special. Yeah, so I, I we completely agree. I mean, even getting to talk to you, and it's interesting you mentioned Felipe. I had no idea that he was connected in that way. But Felipe is one of two people that really got us our start. So he's the greatest. He really is. And a very busy, very successful person that is willing to help others in this industry, just get offering his time. You know, yeah. you, you don't want to take advantage, but it's, it's so true that this community is so strong and we want to see each other succeed. I love it so much. And it's a lot of fun too. And people like Felipe and a few others that are just there, they're present, they're open with their time. That's the only reason I felt like I was even close to being able to dip my toe in the water of being a supporter and a helper of this community because I saw the people doing it. And I just thought that I might be helpful in a certain way. So I enjoy doing these happy hours. They're all online now. They're all through Zoom and everything else. So it's a very different vibe, but we are trying. We're doing our very best. And hopefully soon we'll be back into the real world, face-to-face, buying actual coffee and drinking it with each other vibe soon. But we'll see. <laughs> it's so impressive that, I mean, just this last one that I was on, there were so many people on. You have built a very strong morning wake up with these folks. It's it's really inspirational, honestly. Well, thank you. Thank you. That's very kind of you. I, I enjoy it. I think that it's, I look forward to it. A lot of people will say they're introverts. They don't like networking. I'm the exact opposite. I'm an extroverted extrovert. I like networking. <laughs> I enjoy meeting people. I enjoy learning about what they're working on and really who they are and what their personalities are. So to me, it, it's great. And I will tell you that we were doing these things in real life. When we were doing it at the coffee shop. We would easily have 40 to 60 people there happily. I mean, that was, that was an average time for us. Now online, people are webinared out. They're Zoomed out. They're just tired. They don't want to do anything. They don't want to wake up early anymore. It's one of the greatest things about COVID is that you can basically roll out of bed and be in front of work five minutes later. Mm-hmm. And that is, uh, that's something I don't think is going to go away too soon. but our numbers are gone slightly down and and it's not about numbers. It's about the connections and about the people and the core group of people that show up are really great. But I will tell you another advantage of doing these all online is that we had quite a few people from other cities that are mm-hmm. joining us. I had a number of people from, uh, we have a number of people from LA, San Francisco, Chicago, New York, and it's awesome. Like that's a really, really good thing because the more people that know about the Austin community, the more people, like you said, word of mouth, can talk about the Austin community. Absolutely. And since you're talking to all these CPG business owners, what is a common factor, common pain point that you hear with a lot of them? This is true, not just for CPG startups. This is true for startups across the board. The very first thing every startup will tell you is all they need is money to make it. I just need an investor. I just need a big customer. I just need a bank loan, whatever that might be. The very, very first thing that a company should be thinking about, really the deciding factor of whether they're going to make it or not, is if they truly understand who their customer is. Who is your buyer? How do you get to your buyer? Because if you know that, that piece of knowledge will help you get money. And a lot of people, especially uh, newbies in the startup world, they just think that you have an idea, you run out, you find some investors or the proverbial VC that'll stroke a check for you like a gift from God, and then all of a sudden everything's easy street. The opposite is true. Most investors will only give you money if you're already successful or getting to be successful. And therefore, to be successful, the very best way, and this is very much an Austin thing, is Austin loves bootstrappers. We love to say, let's find our customers, let's get them to pay us, and let's let them fund our services, and then we can turn around and get money. And so in, in the case of CPG, it's know your customers, know their profile, understand what their needs are, understand their price points, and figure out how to get to them in, in any way you can. 
most people start with friends and family and cottage industry laws have changed. You can start selling cottage industry type products. Um, you know, farmer's markets are huge. Uh, we all know that. That's how a lot of brands get started. Once you get past the farmer's market stage, then it's really time to think about e-commerce, specifically around direct consumer. And only then is when you should really start thinking about retail because you have, once again, the buying power to actually make those contracts stick when some of the bigger retailers say, this is what we want. Mm -hmm. So things have changed dramatically because of the internet and frankly, because of COVID a little bit. But I think a lot of people are putting the e-commerce step before the retail step, which I think is smart. I love that you said that because Karen and I are pretty big on um, e-com first, just to prove your product, understand your buyer, hone in on your messaging before you start. I mean, it's a lot of infrastructure. It's a lot of money when you get into retail. It's very, to me, it's an archaic um, side of the industry still. So I love that you said that. I'm a big believer in that. And I think, and and the model's proven out. You know, there's a lot of companies out there. And just think about the amount of inventory money that has to sit on store shelves Mm -hmm. or in warehouses or on trucks to really serve that retail market where you don't have to worry about that at all in e-commerce. And the most important thing is if somebody buys your product at an HEB, you have no idea why they bought it, what they bought it for, how they bought it, what they put in their cart before that. Whereas- You can't track marketing. I mean, it's nothing. It's tough. So with that being said, how what can CPG brands do to really understand their buyer? So talk to your buyer first. Obviously, figure out who your customer is by either doing focus groups at the high end, but really at the low end, really understanding the digital marketing, whether that's, uh, and obviously that's what Umai does. So I know that you have a lot more opinions than I do about this, but Understanding who your buyer is by profiling them with exact matches on Facebook, understand what they're doing on Instagram and TikTok and every other system that's going to come out that we don't even know about yet. But really questioning the customer, why are they this brand, a lookalike brands, why are they buying this brand except for or because of another brand? How do you do adjacent markets? Um, how do you do opposite markets? So non-adjacent markets. Um, I don't think, and this is my favorite example, you don't often see a yoga studio next to a gun store. There's different vibes. You know, that the customers are not going to be going from one store to another. They are not doing that. Now, smoothie shop next to a yoga store? Sure. I get that. No problem. The fact is, is that you have to know where your customers are going, what their motivations are, and why they're doing the certain things they're doing, even if they don't know themselves. That's your job to figure out. But really understanding what that profile is and building those personas, I think, are really critical. Definitely. I would love to hear more about your firm, uh, Egan Nelson, where you provide funding and legal support. So how can CPG brands work with you? Do they pitch you? How does that work? Well, I'll make this as easy as I can. And this is the easiest sales pitch I can ever make. Egan Nelson is a law firm, period, the end. Law firm is a law firm is a law firm. We offer a bunch of different services for a particular niche. In our case, Egan Nelson was founded in Austin. We have offices in Dallas, Seattle, New York, Denver, DC, and we're thinking about a Boston office. And the fact is, is that we're a boutique shop and all we focus on is early stage startups. We're about 70, 75% consumer tech and B2B tech. So still in the startup tech phase. But in the last few years, we've really grown our CPG market quite a bit. Uh, we just hired a lawyer who came from Starbucks in Seattle, which is great. And we've got a lot of CPG experience. And we're really focused on building up that early stage, that zero to one and one to two style startup, where they're going from the initial friends and family round of funding to the Series A and Series B. So the funding side of what we do is really me. They hired me and essentially acquired my consulting firm about five years ago, specifically so I can be a value add to our clients, which is helping them navigate all the different pitfalls of raising capital. My network of of investors, whether that's VCs, angels, angel networks, high net worth individuals, family offices, banks, alternative funders, I know a lot of those folks and I try to introduce my clients to them at the proper time. So while we're a normal standard everyday garden variety law firm, the one somewhat unique aspect of us is they have somebody like me who's doing not just business development and marketing and events, 
but also working directly with the clients, almost in the capacity of an investment bank, even though we don't take any extra fees or anything like that. We're simply a value add, and our job is to make sure they have the very best legal service, and they have at least some guidance around the navigation of running a startup. So they found me through my newsletter, which I was very proud of. And I can with 100% confidence say that newsletters work because it means I have the job I have now. And it made a lot of sense to them to have a marketing guy who knew the market. And it made a lot of sense to them to have a business development person who knew business development. And I love, I, I really do like the firm. They're, they're really good people. They're not just good people for lawyers, they're good people, period. And I enjoy the work and it sells itself because we do very, very good legal work for less than the cost of most law firms out there. And you got me. So what's the lose? <laughs> That's amazing. So it's just a value add. There's That's no it equity or any Nothing. talks like that. Okay. No success fees, no equity, no hidden fees. It's just I am there specifically to facilitate capital. And the reason we do that, A, is because clients need it, number one. It's a market need. Number two, we have to make sure our clients have money so they can pay us. So it's a selfish need as well. <laughs> but at the same time, it really does put us a little bit above, it edges us out a little bit above some of the smaller and equally good law firms out there. And it also hedges our bets against some of the giant law firms out there that would love to work with startups that are simply too big. Mm-hmm. So we're sort of that in-between middle market gap. And I, I really enjoy it. I think the very progressive, very forward-thinking law firm, and we do very good work. And we're, like I said, we're, we're we do good work, very personal, and it's less expensive and responsive than some of the bigger firms out there. So it's a win-win for everybody. So what stage? I mean, I, I think you kind of said it, but what? I guess like looking at financials, when should a CPG brand say, okay, I need legal help. Is that when they're looking at contracts with retailers or is it? Okay. So the easy answer is you should get a lawyer the minute you want to start incorporating your business. The minute it becomes quote unquote, a real business, you should have a lawyer. Nine times out of 10, that lawyer is your brother-in-law or the divorce lawyer down the street or somebody else. But the minute you want to get real with your business, you really should have a good attorney. All of these online services, and they're best exemplified by something like LegalZoom, they're fine at the very beginning just to incorporate if there's nothing complicated about it. If you're just a single LLC or a single member organization, those are fine. The minute you get anything close to a complication, you want a good solid lawyer to look at it and somebody who understands the startup space. So our world is really just past that stage. We certainly do all the incorporation work We certainly can convert you from the proverbial Texas LLC to a Delaware C-Corp to receive funding. Typically, that's a company that's been around for six to 12 months, and that's where we really get involved. Um, But our real goal is to work with the company from that year one to about year seven or eight, and hopefully beyond. And that's the whole point. We get in very early so we can stick with these companies until there's an exit, whether that's through a merger and acquisition, an IPO, something like that. But ultimately, I think that we're, as a law firm, we're best served in that just after traction, you've kind of figured out your brand, you've kind of figured out your model, you are starting to look at contracts, you're dealing with whether it's distribution contracts, co-packing contracts, retailer contracts, that's when you want to bring on a lawyer that's going to really defend your interests against all the people that have been doing this for a million years. Mm-hmm. Personally, I do a lot of mentoring and a lot of support work for early stage companies. So back in the napkin idea, I hear all kinds of crazy ideas all the time, which I personally love. But from a client perspective, we're looking for just a little bit later stage. Awesome. So please. Karen, I was just going to say the best way to put it and my favorite way of putting it is that while we're looking for startups, and this is true of every service provider out there, whether it's Umai or Egan Nelson or Felipe's go ironclad. We're all looking for funded startups. We love dealing with early stage baby startups that have an idea and a lot of pluck and they just want to make it, but we also want to make sure they can pay us. So funded startups, and I don't care if it's your own credit card or you know your, your trust fund or whatever it might be, or outside funding, as long as you can pay your service providers, that's really where we target those types of companies. That's an important note. Yeah, that's smart. Critical. There are lots and lots of places for these baby companies to go, and I try to be one of them. 
But in order to engage a professional service, and like I said, marketing, legal, accounting, insurance, like all these companies, they are not targeting early stage baby startups. They're targeting growth emerging companies that are typically making enough money to A, pay the founders themselves, because sometimes a lot of these startups can't, and B, pay other people, whether it's employees or service providers like us. So that's the sweet spot for any service provider, any company that we look at. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about T-Squared and your consulting? Absolutely. So T-Squared Agency was something I started back in 2013. We had just moved from Houston. My family picked up and moved to Baltimore because of my wife's promotion to her job. And so I'm sitting at home. I was a stay-at-home dad for a year with a consulting firm, helping a lot of clients from across the country, but mostly back in Texas with their capital strategy and really their digital strategy. And so T-Squared was a small little company I built. And through T-Squared, I actually helped launch, or I started to launch the newsletter I mentioned, the Texas Squared Startup Newsletter that I put out once a week, which is essentially a digest of all the major startup headlines in the tech world. And about three years ago, I did a, a, an offshoot of that called Texas Boxed, which is the same type of thing. It's a digest for all of the relevant news for CPG startups in Texas that goes out on the first of the month. Because I had this newsletter and because I continue to put in, there was a, a blogger that I loved his stuff. I thought it was very telling, very good and very thoughtful. And I kept putting it in my newsletter and he kept seeing traffic from my newsletter into his blog. So he called me into his office one day. Hey, Mark, come over. We'll have lunch. And I said, okay, sure. And we had lunch and I walked out of there with a job. It was the lawyer. It was uh, Jose Answer from Egan Nelson and his blog, Silicon Hills Lawyer. And he said, look, we need somebody that knows this space, but we only target startups. We don't really have connections or represent VC funds. So we don't like to make a lot of introductions, but Mark, you do, so go for it. And so that's what happened. Uh, T-Square was essentially acquired by the law firm, which is very, very rare. And I still use T-Square as what I call my personal business. So while I, I run my newsletters out of T-Squared, I do all of my events out of T-Squared. Occasionally, there's a project like an advisory group or something like that that I help startups that are not affected by the law firm. That's what I use T-Squared for. So T-Squared is sort of my um, business persona. That's not my actual work persona, if that makes sense. Can you expand on what you mean by an advisory group? Is that like a like a mentor Type. Yeah. Uh, I, so you triggered something with me, so I'm just going to lay into it. Most accelerator incubators, so think about the worlds of Y Combinator and Techstars and here in Austin, Capital Factory. And obviously we have SKU here, which is a huge deal nationwide. And this is, this is a semantic question. They call the people that work for them as advisors, they call them mentors. That's just the name we've come up with. Uh, I have a very serious problem with the word mentors. I believe very strongly that mentors help people in their careers, whereas advisors help companies. So all of that class of people should be called advisors. And I know it's a silly thing and I know it really, it's interchangeable. A lot of people interchange the word accelerator and incubator the same way people interchange mentor and advisor. But advisors are really consultants that are doing it for the love of helping. They're not doing it for money. But mentors are doing it for the love of the person and the individual. So. I feel that most incubator and accelerator programs have advisors, not mentors. But the truth is, I am an active mentor and advisor at every major incubator accelerator across Texas. And it's something I really enjoy. But occasionally, a company will need a little bit more help, a little bit more time from me. And so I'm working with roughly, I would say, seven or eight different companies that I advise where they will grant me some equity as an advisor and we have regular meetings and we grow the business from there. So that's well, what just I to play, Just to play devil's advocate play here. With uh, mentorship, I mean, you could say that the CEO or founder is the business in CPG, so. That's just. a good point, I'll, I'll buy that. <laughs> it's not exactly the same and I'll tell you why. You put me on the spot, so I'm, I'm fighting back here. Um, <laughs> Yes, nine times out of 10, the CEO is the heart and soul of the business, but they're not the entire business because they have co-founders and vendors, in a lot of cases, investors, 
And so while they're the nexus of everything, they're not the only thing. And a business needs support in all kinds of different aspects. And sometimes a CEO can't handle everything. So they bring in advisors or consultants or mentors to help them or her with any specific issue because that company really should be bigger than the individual. Definitely. And so that's why that's that's why I will I will push back a little bit on that. Definitely. I'm definitely going to uh, go to dictionary.com after this and Yeah, please do, do and side let me by know. side. <laughs> let me know if I'm right or wrong. I, I like that. No, I no, I'm sure you're right. I just I like that distinction. Yeah, it's just something and if you really if you really want to dive into it, there's this, basically there's two columns. There's the mentor column where they're helping people. So they're mentors. At the lowest end of mentors, you have a coach, somebody that's helping with a very specific thing. Whereas in the investment world, you've got advisors and they're helping the company. And then you have paid advisors, which are consultants. Then you have advisors that actually pay you, which are called angels. And so if you start balancing these things out, you'll realize that there's all kinds of different people, individuals helping companies, but they do it for different motivations. Most of the time on the personal side, People are motivated by what I call psychological profit. They're doing it to see a smile on your face. They're doing it to feel better about themselves. Whereas if you're doing it from a professional standpoint, you're doing it to get paid. It's as simple as that. Whether you get paid in cash or equity, it doesn't really matter, but you're doing it for profit. Definitely. So um, when you do advise, mm-hmm. do uh, these companies pitch to you? Can you, can you tell us more what sure. makes a good pitch or a bad pitch? Well, the best pitch in the world is something that's passionate, something that people actually believe in. And I say this to everybody, whether you're pitching me as an advisor or an introduction to an investor, the best pitch is one that comes from the heart and the head. It's something that really is focused on, and the best entrepreneurs out there are the ones that, that observe a problem and know how to exploit it profitably. There's lots of problems out there you can't make any money on. And those are called nonprofits and there is a place for those. That's not where I live. Entrepreneurs that pitch me, I had one yesterday actually. The the guy is very, very passionate about nutrition and about solving world hunger and solving behavioral issues. And he is very, very qualified to do that. It's just not for me. It's not my space. It's not what I do. And I told him so. He asked me to be an advisor and I said, I, I can be an informal one, but I don't think I'm going to be able to help get you over the hump just by my name alone. And so I've seen a lot of really, really good companies that I can't help. And I've seen a lot of really bad companies that I want to help and just don't see that there's a reason to do so because they're not in the right mindset. They're thinking about a problem in an incorrect way. So ultimately, the best companies, and which means the best pitches are ones that see an achievable goal and one that, and I like to call it, is the squeeze worth the juice. Is all the effort and time and money and headache that you're going to spend running this business worth it? Does it make you money? Um, And there's a huge difference between what we call lifestyle business, a company that can make you individually money, that you can, you know, have a roof over your head and food on your table and vacation two weeks out of the year. That's a lifestyle business. Then there's the growth business, the venture business, the entrepreneurial style business, where it's scalable, and that's really the differentiator. Can it scale to the point where it's bigger than an individual and an investor can make money on it? I tend to work with scalable startup businesses, not lifestyle businesses. That's just the way I I, I operate. Not There's nothing wrong or bad about either one of them. They're just very different. And so to speak back to your question, the very best pitch is one that is an addressable problem that has a unique and special solution. There's always a unique selling proposition, always something that is either a insight to the market that nobody else has or a technology, or in this case, a CPG brand that doesn't fit the market or has a, has a gap in the market they're filling. Those are the ones I love. Those are a lot of fun. And the ones that have proven themselves with the always. e-com element. That's right. That's right. Well, I'll, I'll even dive into one right now, one that I love right here in Austin. Oh, please. So she's not a client personally, but she's a friend. Her name is Dee Dee Bryant, and the company is now called Boozy Bites. And yep, Dee, I've had those. <laughs> I, I can honestly say I'm not the target market. Uh, Boozy Bites, for those that don't know, is a vegan 
algae-based jello shot that comes in a patented unique cup that pops up like a like a blow pop or a pop-up uh, thing. So it pops right in your mouth. Well, I don't remember the last time I had a jello shot. It's been <laughs> decades, but people still drink them or use them. And DD has come up with a brand and a product that I think is absolutely brilliant. It's unique in the market. Nobody else is doing this the way she's doing it. It has a very specific target. Obviously, her market is not, you know, middle-aged white guys. It's usually focused on younger women, typically sorority girls, and that's perfectly okay. Sorority girls and bachelorette parties. And she'll tell you that her brand is actually bigger than that. There's tailgating and a bunch of other things. But let's face it, that's who she's going after. And I think she's just done a brilliant job building this brand, building the formulation, and making it work right here in Austin, Texas. Yeah, I mean, Kendra Scott did it with the same niche. So Dee Dee's got it. Absolutely. And Kendra Scott, uh, I'm not saying that she made all her money at my house, but there's a lot of Kendra Scott jewelry <laughs> in my home right now because I have teenagers. Yep. <laughs> How interesting. So what would be your best advice for a small emerging CPG business owner that's just getting their legs and trying to figure this all out? Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna give you the answer, but first I'm gonna qualify the question. I don't know anything. I don't know. I can't. I am not qualified to give advice to anybody under any circumstances. I learned this a long time ago from a personal mentor of mine. Once again, mentor is somebody who cares about you, not the business. So this guy told me years ago that nobody cares about your advice because everybody ignores advice. So I can only tell you what my opinion is, and if you value my opinion, you'll listen. If you don't value it, okay, no big deal. So my opinion about what's the one thing a CPG brand can do, it's, ah, there's so many, but I think the number one thing, we said it earlier, is know your customer. Really understand what they need, what they expect, what their taste profile is, what they expect in a packaging, what they expect on pricing. And if you're going to change their expectations, you better have a good reason for it. You can't just do it because you think it's cool or you think it's fun. You've got to really play with their expectations and make sure that they fit with what they want or what they're willing to pay for is a better way to say that. And also, and this is the very best thing about CPG, especially food and bev, and you'll understand this, make sure it tastes good. I can't tell you how many great brands, great companies, great packaging I've seen, and the product itself tastes like garbage. And it's the most disappointing thing in the entire world. And it's super subjective. Obviously, your taste and my taste are very, very different. Your taste might be different from one afternoon to the next, but there has been a few instances where I've actually opened up the really cool package and I think it's awesome and I love the name and I love everything about it. And I open it up and I taste it and it just tastes terrible. And to me, that is the number one and frankly, the best part about working for CPG because it's very binary. You either like it or you don't. It's that simple. With technology and software, you don't have to love it. You don't have to be a user of it to realize it can make a lot of money. Whereas consumer food and bev, you really do have to like it to really be passionate about selling it, in my opinion. And that's another thing why CPG can be pretty difficult is you not only need to solve a problem, like every other business needs to do, you also have to make it taste good. So it's right. like an, another additional And there's all kinds of things where everybody wants to be in a category now. They want to be keto. They want to be organic. They want to be all these different things. And those are all very noble causes and they're great. But starting a company from an ideal and not a taste, I think is a big mistake, personally. Make sure it tastes good first, then make it healthy. Mm -hmm. Instead of making it healthy and then making it taste good. I, I can't tell you how many times, and once again, this is super subjective to me, and I'm not writing a lot of checks for CPG companies, so I'm not the best person to ask, but I see this all the time, and I hear this from a lot of my CPG VC friends that say, you know, at, at the end of the day, the dogs have to eat the dog food. It's as simple as that. I like it. I, I, that's another, I mean, step one before step two, I think that's really helpful. Yeah, and, and make sure that, and this is the hard part when you're starting to taste and test a product, you're giving it to your friends and family. They're not going to tell you to your face that your baby is ugly. So <laughs> you, you have to make sure that you're getting an honest reaction from people. Um, we went to the farmer's market, uh, I guess it was about six months ago. It was really early on in COVID. And 
So I'm at Lakeline Farmer's Market and I'm walking around. And the best part about me going to Farmer's Market now is I actually know people that are vendors there. So great. Hey, how are you? Good to see you. All right. Uh, so I went to another vendor and they had a package. I'd never seen it before. And I said, what's this? They said, it's a new uh, snack brand. And I said, and, it, and it's local. I said, I'm in, buy, I'll buy it right now. So bought two bags, took them home without trying it because during COVID, you can't taste anything. I'm not going to say what the brand is because I opened it up and the, at first it was cool. It was like a puff. I tasted it. It was great. And then three seconds later, the aftertaste was so awful that I, I literally spit take, spit it out. Um, and I never do that. It was like a cartoon. So I thought maybe I'm crazy. Maybe, you know, I ate something wrong. So I bring my kids in and all of a sudden in a row, one, two, three, four, spit it out, spit it out, spit it out. <laughs> and um, half of that pack is still sitting in my pantry, but it'll never get eaten oh, no. because and it's just one of those things. You you really have to understand what the taste is. And it, it's really, really hard because you need a lot of people to tell you yes, no, or maybe so. And that's really hard, especially now. We can't really go out and do things like that. Mm-hmm. So another challenge. I think it's so, yeah, it's so important to not only, I feel like so many founders that we know we've worked with, we haven't worked with where it's, they make the product just for themselves. Mm-hmm. When you gotta make it for others, you know. Absolutely, absolutely. I see that all the time, and it's something that I, I will tell you a huge perk about working for CPG. And both of you know this. This is not true in software. I can promise you. I get a package two or three times a week. You know, UPS, Amazon. It's <laughs> the best. You know, and that box, whatever that box is, I don't care if it's big box, small box, you open it and you are so happy because it's somebody's baby that you get to to try and taste. And so we are very, very fortunate that those boxes have not stopped. <laughs> the magic of consumer goods. It's yeah. the greatest. <laughs> All right, Allison, I saw you uh, lingering on this last question. So last but not least, Mark. I like the hard ones. Go for it. Yeah. What, who are some CPG entrepreneurs that inspire you that we should, other consumer people can look at? Absolutely. I'm glad you didn't say who are your favorites because it's like picking which kid is your favorite. I have one, but I can't tell anybody. I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) The bottom line, some, some inspirational brands and I'm going to go local and I'm just going to name them because they're friends. They're people that I really like. I really like Christian Pardo. Cristiano Pardo, he's got a, a, a Brazilian cheese bread that I think is phenomenal. I think it's great. I really like Morgan Potts with with uh, Gnarly, which is a whiskey baked granola who I just adore her and I love the brand. Uh, I think that Kevin Newsom with Steam and his uh, cacao sweetened espresso shot is a phenomenal brand. Um, I absolutely adore Chantal Piat with Stroop Waffle or Stroop Club. She's the greatest. Um, there are a lot of local awesome brands that are achieving what I call escape velocity. They're getting beyond Austin, getting beyond the local. I know I'm, I, I said four or five and I'm probably missing a hundred, which is a shame because I love them all. But there are certain brands or certain people here that you just like to see succeed. You like to see help. There are so many of them, it's really hard to pick any, but these are inspirational people because they're getting into national retail in a lot of cases. Uh, Hema Reddy with her Wonder Nuggets is getting into national retail, which I think is great. I think that there's a lot of people that want to see those companies succeed. And frankly, and here's the best part, we're seeing a lot of companies moving to Austin for a variety of reasons, but people are landing in Austin now with their brands. It's not just food and bed. There's a lot of... uh, seeing a lot of apparel, specifically shoes. I'm seeing a lot of shoe brands coming here. And I'm seeing a lot of those places because born in Austin, like made in Austin is actually a brand into itself. It matters. If it was born yeah. in Idaho, unless you're a potato, who cares? But I think that the made in Austin brand is really valuable. We touched on Kendra Scott, one of the biggest consumer brands in the entire world right now is Yeti right here in Austin. You know, we've got things like Tacova's Boots here that are doing, you know, Super Bowl ads. It's yeah. it's just a phenomenal place to be. It's exciting. And I I we asked this question because Karen and I really don't want to make it harder for people. We don't think that you have to reinvent the wheel. Definitely check out these people and model and see what they're doing for your brand. Right. Right. And and here's the best part. You can absolutely do that. 
You can see what they're doing on the public side through, once again, their Facebook and Instagrams. You can see what they're doing on the private side by meeting them because they're very, very vocal and they come to these events, they show up. Uh, I will make a plug for naturallyaustin.org. It's a great organization for a lot of people. The current, how should I say this? The woman uh, who is phenomenal, Emily Keeley, who is running it is now the director of marketing for her parent group. So I'm not exactly sure who they're going to bring in. I'm sure they'll be announced shortly, but that's another great group in Dallas. You've got DFW CPG, which is a similar organization, which I think is doing phenomenally well. Uh, I'm a sponsor and a very active member of a Slack group called startup CPG, which I think is great. There's a Facebook group that I'm actually meeting with somebody on new year's day on my Friday. Uh, who I met through another Facebook group called OMG CPG. And I think that's a really good one. I see a lot of Austin names pop up on that one occasionally. But there's really not a lot of national organizations for CPG support that are not themselves events like Fancy Food Show or Naturally Expo or all those things. So we're starting to see some of those organizations pop up. Yeah, so join some, mingle, Show up. It's, it's all about community. Yep. yep. Absolutely. Just showing up is really, really critical. And it's so easy to do that now online. Uh, there's a there's a brand that I love out of California that was I met here in Austin a few months ago and now I see her online. It's a it's a ginger beer. And it's a Aussie ginger beer. It's fantastic. And I see her all the time, Donna Katz. And hard it's called Hard G's. And it's uh, it's just a great group. There's actually one in Houston doing something very similar. That's Erin Holt Simpson with her brand, Third Born. I, I just, I find them to be plucky and fun and interesting. And like I said, and I, I'm going to be very direct right here. I'm going to be very blunt. I have found, this is just my personal experience. It's not true for everybody. I have found that most of the brands we've discussed are w- run by women. And I find that these women are typically, and I've actually specialized in working with female entrepreneurs for many years, long before I had a lot of girls and kids and all that. I, just, I, I like dealing with female entrepreneurs for one reason. I'm not playing to my audience here. I'm telling you the truth. <laughs> I find that women are typically a lot more coachable than men. And I find that women are much, much better at synthesizing a lot of disparate data. Whereas most guys that I talk to, especially those proverbial two 20-year-olds in hoodies, building software companies, they just listen to the last blog post they read and they just go do whatever that is without really thinking about it. But I find that women also tend to want to be more, not motherly, but want to put a smile on your face. So they really do care what you think about their brand. They're not just looking to sell it. Whereas um, male dominated brands, this is not true in Austin, of course, but male dominated brands are really just about self and velocity. It's a financial aspect to it, less than the, um, taste in the brand and how it makes you feel not playing to your audience eh no i'm trying not to i would never pander (laughs) well mark it's been such a pleasure this you've provided so much value to our listeners and we're so excited to have you on and to get to know you a little bit better is would you like to leave the audience with anything a link a call to action Yes. Uh, well, first of all, thank you both very, very much for inviting me. I feel very honored that I'm even in the same sentence as a lot of the people you've already had in your podcast. I really appreciate it. The fact is, is that I never expected to be in any leadership role of any CPG ever. And now that I, I am somewhat thrust into that position through my own making, of course, I, I got to tell you, I really, really enjoy it. I find it so fascinating and so fun and so interesting. And, and it's because of people like you who are building this and actually doing the professional things that these brands need on the marketing side to make them work, that this whole thing keeps churning. So I think it's really, really a testament to what you're doing in such a short amount of time to build your brand. So I'm really appreciative that you invite me in the first place. That said, the only thing I can say is, gosh, I have so many things I'd like to plug and my favorite subject is myself, which you've given me an hour to talk about. So I appreciate that. Obviously the, the law firm, eganelson.com, that's obvious. If you want to connect with me online, very best way to do is through LinkedIn. And I'm easy to find. Actually, I'm easy to find anywhere on LinkedIn or on the internet. It's MARC1919. Mark1919 is my very first high school uh, email address that I've basically kept through many, many years of online personas. So Mark1919 is nine times out of 10 me on any platform you can imagine. But um, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, you name it. 
Uh, and also please, please, please attend the Wake Up CPG meetup, which we hold on the fourth Thursday of every month. So the next one coming up won't matter because it'll be online. It'll be on the, uh, the, the meetup is the Austin Consumer Products Meetup, if you want to find it there, or on Facebook, Wake Up CPG. Yep, we'll be Wonderful. there too. So come awesome. say hi. Good, it won't be a party without you. <laughs> well, Mark, thank you again. This is a lot of fun. I enjoyed this very, very much. I really appreciate letting me talk. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, You're Mark. Welcome. Enjoy being with all the kiddos. Yeah. Good way to put it. We'll try, we'll try enjoy. <laughs> Ooh, My Social Circle is a CPG agency-driven podcast based out of Austin, Texas. We're excited to share more behind-the-scene insights, chats with industry leaders, and whatever else we learn along the way. Follow us on Instagram at umaimarketing or check out our website, umaimarketing.com. Catch you back here soon.